So going back to the Jar Jar Binks spinoff show, as a, I, I as really, a Dark I just, Lord I don't Sith, get, I don't get it. I try so hard. Is it? Are we I on try, yet? Yeah, are you're we on. Going? You're on. You're I mean, on. I Dar- Jar Jar so Binks spin, spinoff, Dark Sith Lord that just is like Mr. Magoo and messes everything up. Yep. It would be great of all of the Star Wars spinoffs. Anyway, we're we're live. Uh, my name is Zach Adams. Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. So glad that you're joining us tonight. Uh, we've decided that we're going to just pour it on Crichton and just train wreck the intro to this show every single week. Every week. Uh, good feedback we're getting about this. Anyway, again, my name is Zach. Uh, I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. Uh, if you're local, check us out one Sunday morning. Our service is at 1030. If you're not local but want to join us online, uh, you can watch our service on our YouTube channel at Calvary316.live, or you can watch on our Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com slash Calvary316. As always, I'm joined uh, in studio by the man that needs no introduction, the maestro of this dysfunction, Dick Dastardly, Creighton Vaughn. Hello. I am the jester of You're not the jester of anything. Yes, I am. I try to be I, every time. What does that even week. mean, that you're the jester of... A, what? a jester would be similar to a fool. It's like I you was just a long came suffering up with that. Fool la- you came up with that on. Literally while listening to you guys scream that, as I opened the, that was, opened the show. The jester was, was the comedian yeah. to keep the king happy. Yeah. So you're so hearing. a fool. Same you're thing. You're hearing no, other fool. voices that have not been introduced. So uh, we've got Creighton. Creighton, I'm glad you're with me. Hello. Appreciate it. We also, uh, we're down in Nick Monty tonight, but we do have the three amigos. We've got Spice Daddy. We've got Daddy. Dill. Daddy Derek, and we've got Kyle Parkin, who just has Kyle. no nickname, just <laughs> Kyle Parkin. That's his nickname, just you, Kyle. You are kind of rocking an old school vintage Vikings T-shirt. Is it? Is it vintage? I don't know. Like, it kind of looks vintage. Is it not? Is like it four years ago? The team from four years ago. <laughs> vintage from? Is it? Is it in the uh, Christian Panda era or no, is no, it? No, 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 no. I actually think this might be the Keenum year. The Keenum like year. That, yeah. that those were that was a good year. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was a good year. Championship. Game. It was a good year. It's it's a strange thing at Calvary three sixteen for whatever reason we have, we have uh, a, a, a ton of Vikings fans. Um, shouldn't be that surprising because there's very few Falcons fans anywhere because <laughs> they stink anyway. So you guys doing well? Doing great? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of great feedback there. Great conversation. Excited for Vikings. How are season. you? Yes. I'm doing great. <laughs> I'm doing great. I uh, I guess I probably should, you know, I did this uh, church on Sunday, um, <clears throat> but I should give a little bit of an update just about my health. I don't know. I, you guys are all in the loop, but in case, uh, you know, someone is, is watching or listening, uh, again, if you're watching, uh, welcome. If you're listening, podcast, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, if you're listening, check us out. We live stream the recording of the Outlaw Radio Show. Uh, outlawradio.live is our YouTube channel. Uh, Facebook.com slash the Radio Outlaw. Again, Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. little programming note, Creighton is going to be out of town. Uh, we will not be having an episode next week. You are, you've decided to go to Portland, right, for some terrible reason. I am going to see uh, one of my longest time friends who lives in Portland. Uh, I'm going to be spending uh, a little bit longer than the weekend up there with him and his wife hanging out. And will you be living whatnot. on the street and defecating? I I will not be living nor defecating on the street. On the street? Give not, it a shot. You not if I can help it. You might really like it. You're missing out. Don't knock it till you try it. Yeah, don't knock it. You know what? There's some things you That's can That's why it's called a porta potty, dude. Come on. <laughs> a porta potty. Portland. Portland potty. Oh, Portland man. potty. You know what they say about Portland? It's where the dream of the 90s is still alive. The dream uh, of the 90s. Of the ni- anyway, so my health as a quick quick update. So I met with a neurologist uh, about, so kind of recovery is these arms. I have what's called uh, a wrist palsy. Um, so I went to a neurologist to just, I'm doing a lot of therapy, gaining strength, mobility, <clears throat> dexterity. Um, but I did go to a neurologist. Uh, he felt very confident that I had what was called ICU neuropathy, critical illness neuropathy uh, is another name for it. And, uh, and that has a terrible diagnosis. Like it's... The, the, the prognosis of recovery is recovery, but it's in the years and not months. Uh, really depressing. Now, he said that we needed to, to, to get some tests done to confirm, um, but that he felt very confident. So Jessica and I spent kind of a week dealing with that, and then I went and got two different tests done. I got an, a neural connectivity test, um, which is terrible. They put electrodes uh, on you, 
and uh, and then kind of it's like a, a neurologist with a cattle prod just lights you up, and they're reading kind of how uh, the electricity runs through the nerves, seeing if the nerves are damaged, how well the connections are being made. Um, <clears throat> the doc said that uh, because there's not really a word to describe this. Um, uh, there is. It's like getting stung by a yellow jacket or a wasp uh, 50 times. Brutal. So I had that test done, and then I had what's called an EMG test where they stick needles into your muscle, and then you have to flex. And, and for the most part, neural connectivity is seeing you know, if, if your nerves are connected. Uh, EMG is seeing how much information your nerves are communicating to your muscles. Um, and so they actually listen to the muscle uh, with these needles it's like giving blood 50 times. It's, it's terrible. Now, the reason I bring it up is that the neurologist that did the test said that the diagnosis of ICU neuropathy uh, was ill-advised and that I have no neuropathy and that um, he attributes what I'm dealing with um, from the pinching of the radial nerve uh, behind my elbow on both arms uh, and then uh, I think it's the pectoral nerve. I, I forget what the actual name of the nerve is on the outside of your knee. Uh, and basically, when I was in a coma, the way that I was laying immobilized for a long period of time, it pinched these nerves. Um, but that, again, my recovery would be in months, not years, which was very encouraging. So we're still in the process of figuring all this stuff out. Um, I do appreciate all of your prayers and your love, your support. I continue to pray. I'm getting stronger and healthier. I would have loved if Jesus had just healed me all at once. Um, but I'm not Jesus. And his ways are higher uh, than mine. And, uh, and he has a plan and a purpose. And so he... Uh, he healed my lungs miraculously. He gave me the strength and energy. My legs came back quick. Um, I'm gaining more and more normalcy. Um, but my hands, my arms are still lagging behind. Um, and he has a plan and a purpose. So I'm, I'm getting better. I'm getting stronger. Um, but it's just Jesus healing me a little bit each day and not all at once. And, uh, and again, he's teaching me a lot, of, a lot of cool things through that. So just a quick update. Didn't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I actually have a little bit more I talk about uh, if you want to check out c316.tv that's our media hub um in the middle of all of this uh, i was teaching through matthew 12 uh again going verse by verse chapter by chapter this is not planned on on my end uh but in the middle of all this i end up teaching on jesus healing the man with the withered hand and uh and just had a totally new appreciation for that miracle with all the things that i've been going through so um that kind of give you guys an, an update a little bit just on on my health and kind of where things are at yeah. again yeah. Continued prayers, love, support. Um, but with all that being said, let's transition into the topic of conversation. So the way that this show works is I have no idea what we're talking about. None of these guys have any idea what we're talking about. But Creighton. Creighton comes in, introduces a topic. It is then my job to turn that topic into a Bible study or at least some, some measure of ed edification. These guys will help me by interjecting their thoughts and asking questions, kind of helping me develop an idea. Um, but we would also encourage you guys that are watching uh, the live stream, um, you can join the conversation. So if you have a thought or a question, something you would like to interject, go to the comments section in the, the, the thread on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Creighton, you are monitoring them both, correct? I am indeed. And we actually have our first comment from a uh, longtime watcher, Jennifer. She says, howdy. Howdy, howdy. howdy. And howdy. That you'll be in her prayers. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you, Jennifer. Yes. I appreciate it. And, um, and so if they drop a, a note, you're monitoring this throughout the show and, uh, and, and you'll kind of jump in at different points to kind of add the, the yes. listener viewer feedback. And generally speaking, different points is more or less at the end of the show. Um, unless it's very pertinent to what we're talking about. I generally <laughs> leave comments to the end of the show, uh, just cause it not to break up the flow of conversation. If it's, you know, a new question or just a, you know your parents dropping in to say <laughs> right, hi, right. Yeah, my family. to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually become an interesting thing that both of my brothers um, have become avid listeners. Uh, sometimes they watch it. A lot of times they just catch it on the podcast. And uh, so shout out to Nick and Mac. Uh, Nick was wanting to be on the show next week, uh, and, and you decided to go to Portland, so we won't be having a show. He'll be in town. Oh, I didn't and realize that was next yeah, week. That's no. a shame. I, I actually think you're doing all of us a favor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that could have been... Just a disaster waiting to happen. Oh, um, if if there is, let, let's say Creighton, that somebody who is uh, like, for example, my youngest brother, uh, we were talking. He has this coworker, and uh, he he was asking me some advice on how to address this particular issue, and and then he kind of actually cut himself off. He was like, you know what, 
I need to uh, I need to reach out to Creighton. This would be a great episode of the Outlaw Radio Show. So if someone's watching or they have a question, something that's on their thought, their mind, something that they, they think would be a good... How can they get in touch with you? What's the right mechanism to do that? Because we've done that in the past. Yes. Uh, and, and that's, again, trying to engage the audience. Um, we need all the, the topics we can get, right? Yes. And the easiest way to get them to me is to either leave a comment, once again, on either YouTube or Facebook. Um, if you don't want to do that or whatever. Um, you can also email me, especially if you're on the podcast. Uh, my email is CreightonVaughn at gmail.com and I will spell that and I will leave it in the comments. It's C-R-E-I-G-H-T-O-N-V-A-U-G-H-N at gmail.com. So yeah, shoot me an email, um, put Outlaw Radio question or something about Outlaw Radio in the title and uh, hopefully we'll be able to put it up on the show. We've done one from South Africa once, which was pretty cool. Which was very cool. Let me very, add very cool. Let me add one more thing. So we're going to, as soon as Creighton introduces the topic, he's going to type the topic into the comments section. Uh, I'm going to try to do a better job of just at various points throughout the episode, uh, kind of bringing it back to what we're talking about. Because if you do kind of dive into the show halfway through, um, sometimes you're a little lost. So I need to do a better job of that. But also the comments section, uh, you're after you introduce the topic, you're going to kind of type that out so that people have an idea what we're talking about, yes. if, even if they lack the context of maybe the first third of the episode. Yes, it would make it uh, much easier to get into the flow of what we're talking about if you have a at least a head start as a diving board, which would be the title. Yes. Let's, <laughs> let's do that. So right. what are we talking about? What's the question? So um, the question today, uh, the short version is, like, what was the Pharisees' deal? <laughs> like, because, uh, like, I feel like, the first time we see them, they are all up on Jesus's jock, for lack of a better term. There's got to be a better like, way to say that. I'm but gonna... they are all in his business. And, it, like, I don't, there's not a whole lot of rising action to the Pharisees' um, hatred of Jesus. It's like the first time we see them, they're just after him. Well, not really. Not no, really. Maybe, maybe I have a... That would be a good place to start the episode. Then maybe I have a have a um, a mis a misunderstanding or a misrepresentation of exactly how that works. Because I feel like the first time we see them is possibly when Jesus is twelve and he's talking to the old the old guys at the at the temple and they're having a grand old time. And I feel like the next time we see them, they're trying to cut Jesus's legs out from under him in front of crowds, which I feel like is a very big difference. Okay, I got you. you Let, know what I mean? Before before I start unpacking the Pharisees and before we get into this, just uh, throwing it you guys' direction. Any just introductory thoughts about what's the Pharisees' deal? For no lack I, of a better way of phrasing the question. I also kind of agree. I haven't really thought about it as in depth, but it does seem like I mean when they're walking through the fields and picking the things, somehow the Pharisees are there. Like, yo, your boys, look what they're doing. They're not supposed to do this. Like, why are they there? What are they? What doing? translation are you reading out of? Um, <laughs> just the Ebonics translation. The Ebonics translation, yeah. the Jive so, yeah. Jive Study Bible. New King Ebonics <laughs> translation. Yeah, N K E. Yo, what you doing with yeah. your boys, Jesus? <laughs> yeah, he was like, yo, your boys out here picking wheat. Why? Y'all gleaning, y'all gleaning some wheat. He was like, "Okay, if your donkey fell in there, would you get it?" And he just kind of left it at that. And they were like, "Yeah, I guess." <laughs> That's <laughs> so, a great translation yeah. of of the first ten verses of Matthew twelve. Yeah, see, we get through it quick. We get through it quick. That might be a new segment that we can do at church. You know, <laughs> Derek reading. Derek reading the Gospels. <laughs> His mental carrying, understanding of what's yeah. going on. Yeah, so, so it's like, hey, we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to read the text. But before we do, yeah. we're going to get Deal Daddy Derek's yeah. reading. No, no but should. on a serious note, like, yeah, like they, they always do seem to be there. They're always trying to contradict what he's saying because some of it was a lot of radical, like saying, like, no, I am the way, the truth, and the life in that way. Like, it does seem like they're always there. Okay. Okay. And, uh, Spice Daddy, introductory well, thoughts. Uh, I think you gotta you gotta come at it from a perspective of they were the guardians of the the of, people of the for galaxy. Like, yeah, for <laughs> five hundred years after the the return from Babylon, because they didn't have they didn't really have a temple or practices because the the ark was gone from that point. All they had was God's laws, and so it quickly delved into to over religiosity. 
as opposed to... So we'll need to get into some of the origins. Right. We should talk a little bit about the origins. Kyle, introductory thoughts. No, my first thought is... And that would be a lack of understanding or remembering the, you know, sequence of events. But I would think there would have to be something that Jesus had done at some point that kind of, you know, if he said, I'm God right there at the beginning when he first started his, his ministry, if that word traveled quickly enough, I could see how maybe the Pharisees would say, oh, hold up. We got to we got to prove to this guy that he's not God, because there's a lot of times where it's like tricking him. It's not just, you know, going, you know watching what he's doing but they they're setting traps mm-hmm. they're being aggressive aggressively trying to prove that he's not perfect or that he's not god so we'll also need to try to unpack a little bit of um the motivation mm-hmm. you know behind some of their actions and 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 why there was um i think an escalation i, I, I you can actually absolutely say there was an escalation um of their attacks of jesus and, and their their presentation and and approach um, I think it, that kind of primed the pump. Let's start with kind of origins. Now, I, I don't know exactly when the Pharisees were instituted as a political party in Israel. Um, I, again, no prep time for this. It's getting dropped on me. We do know that at the time of Jesus, there was uh, several interesting things, several different uh, noteworthy um, developments in the political sphere. As Justin mentioned, um, coming out of Babylon, you don't you don't have any mention of the Pharisees or their political rivals, the Sadducees, um, at all in the Old Testament. Uh, nor do you have any reference to the uh, uh, the the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, which is also kind of a notable group of people when you get to the Gospel records. You don't have any mention of any of those people at all uh, in, in the Old Testament. Also, should point out that you don't have any mention of of synagogues um, in the Old Testament. Uh, the concept of a synagogue uh, was something that developed in the, the Babylonian exile. So for those of you that are not familiar with kind of the totality of, of the, the story arc, uh, the children of Israel, kingdom split um, after Solomon. Um, you had the northern kingdom of Israel. You had the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, God would end up using the Assyrian Empire uh, to judge and destroy the, the ten northern tribes, Israel. Um, Hezekiah repented through the ministry of Isaiah. God spared them uh, destruction. Uh, about, but two year, 200 years or so later, uh, under Jeremiah the prophet, you had the Babylonian, Babylonian Empire come in um, and be God's hand of, of judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. They sacked Jerusalem. Uh, this is the, the time period in which um, a, a group of choice young men are taken into exile. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fit in with the, within this time period. Uh, as Jerusalem is burning, um, Jeremiah writes a little book of lamentations um, as he's weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah's ministering uh, at this time, writes lamentations. Uh, you've got Daniel, the, the, the prophecies of Daniel. Um uh, Ezekiel will, will minister. He'll be one of the unique prophets that, that will minister in exile. Um, so the people were removed from the land uh, for 70 years because they had refused to obey the Sabbath year for 490 years. But then as God prophesied, as God foretold, they were allowed to return after 70 years. Um, and and they, they returned to the land um, in a few different waves. Um, you had, again, men like Ezra. You had men like Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Um, a temple was rebuilt. They were given permission to not just return to the land, uh, but to rebuild the temple. Um, it was a, a shadow of what Solomon's temple had been, to the point that when, um, uh, when Zerubbabel finishes building the temple, the people weep um, because it's a shanty. You know, it, just, it, it, it was such a, uh, a poor reflection. Now, over the next several hundred years, a lot of things happened. Um, while they were in exile, other people groups moved into the land, the area. Uh, those people groups didn't leave, a.k.a. you have the Samaritans. Uh, the Samaritans were a combination of the, the remnant of the Jews that uh, intermarried with uh, groups of people that were moved into the area. Um, it's kind of the way that the Assyrians operated and, and later the Babylonians. They would remove some of the population to other areas. They would move other populations into the area. It's just kind of like they stripped people of national pride uh, national land identity and just made them Babylonian. 
so you had a, a bit of a melting pot to the point that by the time of Jesus, the area of Galilee, a lot of people don't know this, that the region of Galilee, somewhere between two and three million people in population, was, was over 50% Gentile. Huge Gentile populations in the region of, of the Galilee. It was the main fishing uh, commercial area. Um, it, was, it was on the main thoroughfare that would connect back to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the Jordan River Valley gave it deep access um, down towards even even into the, 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 the northern areas of Egypt. Anyway, so over the 400 years or so between the close of Malachi, the ending of the Old Testament, and then the, the, the beginnings of, of Matthew or <clears throat> the early revelations of, of uh, the, the birth, the soon birth of John the Baptist and later the, the coming of Jesus. These 400 years of silence, a lot of things happened in the land. Um, rise and falls of empires. You know, you had the Assyrian Empire give way to the Babylonian Empire. But then after the Babylonian Empire, even while Daniel is in exile, you saw the, the, the fall of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, again, this, the, the, the transitioning of global empires, uh, playing Israel in the land like a hacky sack, you know, just getting tossed between, between rulers and occupiers. Uh, from Assyria to Babylon, from Babylon to the Medo-Persians, from Medo-Persia to Persia. And then from the Persians, you had uh, these interesting conquests of Alexander the Great. Uh, you had, you know, the early victories of, of Sparta and the 300, and King Xerxes, and, uh, and it gave rise to the Grecian Empire. Uh, the Grecian Empire had a lot of focus in the areas of Syria and Israel. Um, there was a lot of conflict between... Uh, the, the Jewish remnants, again, they're still an operating temple, uh, but they're not an independent people. So they're constantly having to kind of barter uh, between some type of national sovereignty, but, but interacting within a, an occupying power. Uh, Greece, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, there's a whole lot of, of history and story. Um, segwaying from Greece to then Rome. You know, Rome came in and became the main power broker um, 100 uh, B.C. onward taking over the area from, from Greece, instituting their own policies. Now, one of the things that made, that made Rome different than, let's say, Greece <clears throat> is that Rome had a different strategy in how they governed the people, how they run, ran the empire. Uh, Rome was very much content with, a, with allowing individual sovereignty um, to exist, uh, national sovereignty to coexist under Roman occupation. They were completely content with letting local people govern local municipalities as long as they submitted to Rome, uh, supported Roman troops and Roman authority, and Roman taxes. And subsequently, um, Rome uh, included them within the empire. Uh, the infrastructure improved life. Roman roads, Roman aqueducts, aqueducts the infrastructure that they created, uh, some of the great port cities from Caesarea Philippi onward, um, uh, a lot of cool things that, that Rome did. Now, Israel, uh, existing in this environment, um, had to have kind of an agreement, a tit-for-tat, with, with Rome. Now, there were times in which you had uh, revolutions, the Maccabean Revolution. Uh, again, I don't ascribe to the Apocrypha, some additional biblical uh, manuscripts included in the Catholic Bible, uh, but they do provide us some interesting history of some of this time period, where Judas Maccabeus leads a revolution against Rome, and that gets squashed. There was always this battle between, you know, self-governance, dealing with Rome, trying to be at peace with Rome, trying to, to do our own thing, and that gave rise, interestingly enough, to what was known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a, a ruling party of 70 plus one, which would include the high priest. Rome, again, was content to let the Jews govern the Jews. Um... With everything but capital punishment, that was a right that got stripped. Um, I believe it was in 6 AD. Um, they were stripped of the, the right of capital punishment. Um, later on, there, there was, uh, you, you follow the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great ruled the area. He divided the region into three, a, a trek, what would we call it, a trek arc, um, a, a threefold kingdom. Something like that. Um, so there were three different kings. You had Philip, you had Antipas, you had, you had a... a another one. Anyway, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, problems with that. So Rome actually came in and installed a governor. Like the Sanhedrin still had ruling authority, but because they couldn't get their crap together, 
Um, Rome instituted a governor. Uh, his name, uh, again, biblical, uh, biblically noteworthy, is Pontius Pilate. A lot of this stuff is happening, and this is my point, geopolitically, uh, during this segue. The Sanhedrin's made up of 70, plus the high priest is the, 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 the tying vote. During the time of Jesus, there was actually two high priests, Annas, as well as Caiaphas. Um, again, that's its own backstory. You want to talk about a cartel? Um, they were a cartel. Um, but in the course of time, you had these two political factions uh, that, that rose up within Israel. You had a very liberal wing of Judaism known as the Sadducees um, that were um, not, not the majority. They were a minority, but they were a vocal minority. Um, they, they, they were kind of the, um, I won't say the turncoats, but they were very much more um, in line with kind of Greek culture, the blending of Greek culture and Jewish culture. They weren't uh, real committed religiously. Uh, they didn't believe in a literal reading of the Bible. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in resurrection. Um, on the other end, the more popular party, predominant party uh, within Israel was the Pharisees. Again, a political uh, party of the religious establishment, making up the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees were the Bible geeks. They were the fundamentalists. Um, they were uh, faithful, zealous for the law, for the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, for upholding the principles of the law. Um, pharisaical traditions, the development of the expansion of their understanding of various commandments. Most notably, you'll find within the Gospels, uh, they expanded uh, the definition of, of what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy, of what it meant not to work on the Sabbath. Uh, they were, were very big into the temple. They made all kinds of sweetheart deals. Uh, Herod the Great took Zerubbabel's temple, made it one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, again, their power, authority, prestige, role uh, was dependent upon uh, political peace and stability. Um, but they were also religiously pure, the Pharisees. Uh, don't have a whole lot to say about the Sadducees. They're not a big player. Uh, another group of people that you'll find within the scriptures uh, associated within the topic is, is what's known as the scribes. You the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes were, were largely apolitical. Um, but you think of them more as the lawyers. Uh, they were kind of a judicial branch. They called the balls and the strikes. Um, they interpreted the law. Uh, they didn't have a, a, a necessarily a political bent, left or right. Uh, they just kind of sat in the middle, the arbitrators. Again, they were the umpires of the day. Now, as Justin mentioned, and this is true, that you know, our first mention of the Pharisees isn't actually within the ministry of Jesus. Uh, the first mention of the Pharisees, the religious authority, the scribes, is the ministry of John the Baptist. Um, that we're told that during John's rise of popularity, that a delegation uh, from Judea, from Jerusalem, came down to the Jordan uh, to hear what John was preaching. I mean, this wily prophet, after 400 years of silence, this prophet comes onto the scene, and these guys go out to evaluate, which, as Justin mentioned, was part of their responsibility. Their responsibility was to um, to kind of act as the gatekeepers, the guardians of the galaxy. Uh, they were the the religious right. They were the purebreds, and they wanted to safeguard the people from heresy or from wildly influences. Um, scribes are calling balls and strikes. The Pharisees have more of an agenda. So they go and they evaluate John's ministry, and then very quickly, John's ministry, again, if you're a student of the scriptures, segues to Jesus. And early on, the exchanges that, that we see with Jesus and the scribes, the Pharisees, are, are, I would say, largely inquisitive. You know, their job is to find out who this guy is, what he's teaching, why he's teaching this, what his theology is. Is this in line with the Old Testament? Is this consistent with the scriptures? Is this guy a heretic? Um, is he, you know, who is he? What is he doing? Um, should he be discredited uh, or even worse, um, arrested? You know, should action be taken? Um, to, to a large extent, there was a responsibility of, from the Pharisees, and maybe I'm giving them a little bit too much credit, but to protect the people from uh, heretical influences, which during that time, there had been people that they had gone after, the people that had led them into great conflict with Rome which had caused them to have rights stripped 
had 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 prompted the strong arm of rum to crush back onto the people. Um, they're trying to keep things at peace, trying to keep a population. And you got to remember, even during this time, you had what was known as the Zealots. Uh, in fact, one of Jesus's apostles was Simon the Zealot, or, or translated the Daggerman. Uh, these were men that were known of, of having these really long uh, needle-like uh, daggers, and they were experts at, at going up to Roman soldiers in a crowd and, and inserting the knife right up specifically through the hardware um, so that they could kill a soldier, go in, go out, and slip into the crowd without even being noticed or caught. The daggermen. I, I think of Arya Stark, you know, in, um, <laughs> in Game of Thrones. You know, just the cold-hearted assassins. But all that's still going on during this. I mean, there's a segment of the Jewish population, large segment, that doesn't like Rome. They don't like the taxation. Uh, they hate it. Uh, they're looking for political revolution. Now, the Pharisees are trying to keep the peace. The Sanhedrin's trying to keep things at bay. But then you got this Jesus guy. And I think the early interactions are inquisitive. I think based in, in, in a, a responsibility of, of, of protecting the people, of governing the people. Again, the Pharisees have no mandate within the Old Testament. This is not part of the governmental structure uh, that God had ordained. Uh, the Sanhedrin was something completely made up on their end. Uh, these political factions, nothing mandated in the Old Testament. Uh, this was just given rise over 400 years of a really interesting period of Jewish history in which we don't have a lot of information concerning. But Jesus comes on the scene, John comes on the scene, and these guys are like, what in the world are, are these guys doing? Now, it's true that you begin to get uh, more and more animosity and opposition, um, kickback, resistance, um, specifically as the pop popularity of Jesus begins to soar. You know, the, Jesus is, is starting to attract masses. Um, it, it, there is a huge following of people. Um, he's teaching about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, and so they start pushing back a little. I, again, I think part of it, the motivation maybe still being pure, trying to figure out who this guy is. But with more and more evidence mounting, you know, and Jesus making more and more radical statements. I mean, Jesus didn't shy away from controversy. I mean, Jesus, in, in a tit-for-tat with, with this group of people, said, you know, that, you know that he's talking about Abraham. He's trying to build this argument about faith, um, salvation by faith and not works. And he's just talking about Abraham, and, and they're like, and he's talking about Abraham as if he knows Abraham. And they're like, how do you know Abraham? How can you speak of it? You're not even 50 years old. And then Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Using the, the great I am statement from Exodus 3, when God introduces himself uh, you know, to Moses to introduce himself to the people. The great I am that I am. And they were so outraged that they picked up stones to, to, to kill him there, but couldn't. It wasn't God's timing. And there are many instances where Jesus invokes you know, messianic language. Um, in Matthew 12, in that in the exchange Derek mentioned of the the Pharisees pointing out the Jesus is apparent disregard for their main man traditions about the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, that is a radical um, statement. Jesus again had no problems pushing back. He engaged them. He argued with them, and he showed them up a lot of the times. You know, they, they, they end up planting a man with the withered hand in a synagogue to, to coax Jesus into performing a miracle on the Sabbath so they could say, ah, I gotcha. And yet Jesus, you know, perceiving their thoughts is like, you guys are dumb, you know? I mean, which one of you, if, if, if one of your lambs fell into a ditch, wouldn't, wouldn't retrieve it even if it was on the Sabbath? It's, it's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he turns and he heals the guy, you know? But Jesus gave testimony to these folks. I think a most notable one is in Mark, the end of Mark chapter one, where Jesus heals a, a leper the first time he heals a leper. And he instructs the leper to go to the temple to present himself to the priests, the religious class, um, as a testimony to them. Uh, as a testimony to what? Well, uh, never before in Israel had a leper been healed. Uh, they were real good at diagnosing leprosy, according to Leviticus 13. Uh, but they had never used Leviticus 14, uh, diagnosing a healing of leprosy. And again, 13 and 14 is in the heart of the Levitical law. 
And it's this allegory of sin and salvation. But Jesus wanted this to be a testimony to them. He wanted them to know something amazing was happening. So this religious party becomes more and more hostile to Jesus, even to the point that you get, uh, again, invoking Matthew 12. We're told that based on that exchange with the man with the withered hand, that they started actively plotting uh, how they might destroy him. You know, so what might have began as um, responsible inquisitiveness, doing their job as as the guardians of the galaxy, uh, more and more and more through their exchange with Jesus, they, they grow to be hostile, uh, to be venomous. Uh, they begin to attack Jesus. Um, they start accusing him of things. Uh, they start, you know, they've got to come up with some explanation for his ability to cast out demons that they couldn't cast out. They couldn't exercise. And so they start a rumor, slander, that he's doing this by the power of Satan. Um, because Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners and came to minister to the lost. Wasn't doing what the conventional rabbi was doing, what they were doing. You know, they, they accused him of being uh, a wine bibber, a wino, a glutton, a partier. Um, they slandered him. They made fun of him. They uh, attacked him. Uh, they spread rumors about him. Um, even to the point that when the crescendo was kind of reached, Jesus, knowing what was going on, goes to Jerusalem. Uh, the people are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. Not a good look when you've got Rome, uh, you know, already on edge because of the number of, of Jews that would swell into Jerusalem for Passover. And you've got this guy riding a donkey into Jerusalem, people waving palm fronds, you know, revolution, hailing this guy as the king. And and you get an insight into the Pharisees' mindset. They they come to Jesus and like, you need to tell them to be silent. This isn't going to work out well for all of us. And Jesus is like, well, if I tell them to be silent, the rocks will cry out for it's my day. And you're missing it. From that point forward, they hatch a a plot with Judas. They need a time, a location They need to be able to uh, seize Jesus apart from the mob that they knew would protect him. And so Judas sells Jesus out, gives away the location. Jesus there going to the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night, quiet, away from the multitudes. You got to realize Jesus gets arrested. He's tried and executed by noon before anyone knew what in the world was going on. Um, And they used all their political influence to pressure (coughs) Pilate into executing Jesus. Pilate famously washing his hands of, of the death of this innocent man. But the Pharisees don't end as, as a story there. In fact, not all the Pharisees even at that moment um, are evil or even on the wrong team. In fact, um, there were two notable, very notable, famous Pharisees, members of the Sanhedrin, a man by the name of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who used their political influence to go to, to Pontius Pilate and say, let us retrieve the body and give him a proper burial. Uh, two converts, again, John chapter 3, Nic- Nicodemus coming to Jesus, uh, wanting to know about the kingdom, you know, and what would it require to be saved? You know, not all the Pharisees were, were out for Jesus' scalp. Uh, there were some good men. Now, the Pharisees continue as a storyline because then Jesus rises from the dead they get paid off by the Pharisees, the soldiers, uh, to concoct a story that the body was stolen. They're trying a cover-up, a cover-up that doesn't work because Jesus appears to over 500 people. You know, you can't, you can't hide, you know, you, you can't bury the resurrection of God that's making appearances after death. Um, but then a notable Pharisee um, within the first decade of the church um, rises up in opposition, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus a Pharisee that had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, um, who orchestrates the execution of the first martyr, a man named Stephen. Now, that Pharisee would encounter Jesus on the road to Damascus and would become not just a convert, but the chief proponent of Christianity, uh, his name being changed from Saul to Paul. So the Pharisee is very much a player, a part of the story. Again, I, I'm not 100% sure the particulars of their origin other than I know the time frame in which they came out of. Now, before we get to deeper motivations, which I think, Creighton, is, is kind of the essence of, of the question. Like, what's their deal? What's, what is motivating them to act the way that they do? 
before we get to that, let me let me kind of throw it back to you guys. I know there, there was kind of a lot. It was kind of a free flow of consciousness there about the Pharisees. Um, what are your thoughts? Any 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 kickbacks here? Um, can we can we possibly give the Pharisees a little bit of credit? Can we go as far as to say that if they're scholars and they're really checking things out and they've been told that a king's coming eventually, that they're always on the look for the potential of a king coming, and when they see anything rise up, they go in and check it. And with Jesus coming as a lamb instead of a, a king at that time, is that the motivation behind the the trying to you know trick him into it and then i mean you could well we can get into the motivation in a moment but i would completely agree that i think you know i get again i think it's fair to give a little bit of due uh to the pharisees and just just the angle that they are responsible for the people you know that they are to some degree the gatekeepers you know that that they are to evaluate you know, who's coming onto the scene and what they're doing, what they're telling the people. Um, again, you see them with John. I think that's an appropriate function of their role. Um, and then with Jesus, you know, so for for the in their initial exposure, um, I think there's a lot of interest. Again, I think you, going back, John, you know, John's gospel includes way more of Jesus's <clears throat> ministry during what we know as kind of the year of obscurity. John's gospel gives us way more information to that first year. Of ministry, where you know Matthew, Mark, and Luke pick up predominantly when Jesus launches his Galilean ministry, but before that, we know that Jesus had an extensive ministry in in, in Judah, uh, in Judea, and in, in Jerusalem, in the Jordan. Uh, he was baptizing alongside of John the Baptist. You know, he had a ministry there. He was uh, again. There's two other Passovers we have mention of Jesus attending, uh, recorded in John's Gospel. But my point is that even early on. I think in that evaluation, trying to figure out who Jesus is, you had the Nick at night story. Again, a Pharisee that comes to Jesus. Um, he's not trying to draw attention. He comes at night. Now you could say, well, he's not wanting to be associated with Jesus, or maybe he's just trying to find a, a quiet time to have a, a serious theological conversation, you know? Um, but he comes and, and he has an exchange with, with the Lord again, completely within line of, I think the, the functional role, the responsibility uh, that these men had again not a responsibility that they were per se given by god because we don't have their ordination um articulated within the scripture uh, they're not an office um you know prophet priest and king are the three ordained offices uh, that god instituted you know uh, the prophet was to speak it was to be the mouthpiece uh, for god to the people the priest was to represent god uh, represent the people before god and the king was the, 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 the reach of God's authority over the people. Prophet, priest, and king. The Pharisees are, are none of the three. Um, you have the priests sometimes being Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were priests. Um, in fact, not all Pharisees were Levites. Some of them were, but not all were. Again, most notably, uh, Paul. Saul of Tarsus was, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, and was not part of the Levitical order. Um, so again, I, I do think it's fair to give them their due that initially they're like, what is this guy? You know, what is going on? Who is he? You know, you, you get that exchange where they come and they, they ask of John, they say, are you, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And again, that gives us insight into, into what the, the Jewish leaders were looking for. They were looking for the Messiah someone that they viewed to be a political leader. To the third, they were looking for um, Elijah because Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come before the Messiah, would be the forerunner. They were also looking for, and this is a whole other conversation, they were looking for what's called the prophet, which again finds itself <clears throat> rooted in, I believe it's the end of Deuteronomy, where Moses produces a prophet greater than he. Um, evangelicals, we have the understanding that, that this is the dual ministry of Jesus, that Jesus came uh, as the Messiah, but the Messiah had two roles. Uh, first coming as the prophet, a spiritual leader, bringing about a spiritual kingdom, and then later on in a second coming would, would be more of the, uh, the messianic, kingly attribute of establishing a rule and reign in, in Israel. But they were looking for three. 
you know, three different people, which is why they come to John and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And he's like, he's like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm none of these. Um, Jesus would, would later say of John that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So again, I think they had a responsibility. I think they were on the lookout. I think that they were evaluating Jesus. Now, at some point, you know, things take a hard right. Before we get to that, you fellas, uh, Dill Daddy, Spice Daddy, y'all got anything? Uh, just kind of going off of my modern experience. You do. Like, you have an interesting background in, into Jewish culture. Yeah, so like just being around, I guess, for lack of a better term, the modern Pharisaical, uh, <laughs> known as the rabbinical order of things like orthodox in, judaism orthodox judaism but you have a you you have a rabbinical like leadership uh, yes. in, in the state of israel and really in judaism as a whole um and i don't know if this applies to the past historical aspect of it um but there there's a concept now of of they're looking for two different messiahs uh, Mashiach ben Joseph or Yosef and Mashiach ben David. So one coming as a conquering king and one coming as a, like a lowly servant kind of thing. And, and so I, I don't know the, the aspects of that back then, but even till today they're, you keep using, they were, they're still looking for a Messiah. Right. They still and, are. And yeah. they've, they've had a few that, that they thought were it. And then they died <laughs> and, uh, nothing ever changed. So, um, they're, they're still on the lookout. The only way you're, you're, the only way the death of a Messiah works out is when he rises from the dead. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, it, that becomes a validating yeah. principle. Yeah. And there's a cool, there's a couple of cool, like, uh, organizations like Jews for Jesus and stuff that, that kind of, they, they work towards, uh, showing who the Messiah is to, to their people. You know, there's and, a, uh, there's a rabbi in Israel that is the chief spokesman for Pepto-Bismol. His name's Rabbi Ben Crappen. Uh, I knew this was going to be a joke. Oh Man, I just came up with that just right there. I mean, that was <laughs> but I, excellent. But I, I think it like just what's really cool. You, you kind of get a taste of what I guess what they were going through back then. The, those that the Jews that became Christians, uh, like uh, th there's a good uh, it's on YouTube. It's called One for Israel, and you can watch like a bunch of white chair testimonials kind of like the the i am second uh videos of like jews they're telling their their uh their testimonies and it's just right. like yeah that's awesome and just like becoming a completed jew i guess is what they would say but it's just i i kind of wonder if they were looking for they were looking for the three people but did they have that concept of the two different messiahs i think so then? with the christ and the prophet i think that's right the indication and i know i know they were looking for a conqueror to save them from rome but so getting so. to motivations with the time that we have left which is i think uh, and again i hope a lot of the the, the background context gives a, a little bit more insight um to validate I think what is kind of a difficult question because we're not specifically given their motivations. It's not like I can point to chapter and verse. So it's, it's more of, right. Of there's no person. There's no first person POV of a Pharisee talking about their motivations. Well, yes, yes. Now I, I will, the closest that we can get to it is, you know, the, what motivated Saul of Tarsus and his, and his animosity venom towards Jesus in the church and, uh, and what was happening. You know, he, in his own testimony, and I believe it's Philippians 3, you know, he, he goes through, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Um, concerning the law, I was zealous. Concerning, um, you know, zeal, I persecuted the church. Um, you know, Paul, Paul indicates a zealousness towards the law, which, which, again, when you look at the exchanges that the Pharisees had with Jesus, a lot of them seems to boil down to um, a, a, a reaction to insult that Jesus was saying things that regardless of how they viewed Jesus, which, which I think that I think they end up knowing who Jesus is. I, I think we can make that case at some point, but they end up in a dynamic where, where what Jesus is saying to them was offensive to something that's, that's very deep within human people especially these, this group of people, and that is their sense of more morality. 
their sense of moral rightness. You know, if you look back to the reasons why God judged the people using Babylon, you know, you can really point down to the fact that they had not given due regard to the Sabbath, hence the 70 years. They hadn't, they hadn't obeyed the Sabbath. <clears throat> By that point, they hadn't, they hadn't given mind to the temple. Um, the temple was, was so, a place of a lot of sacrilege and, um, and just really uh, grotesque practices. Uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a, a lack of, of that moral standard. And, and not only that, but they hadn't really obeyed um, God's commission and command to remain set apart and holy. Uh, they had intermarried with the Gentile nations. They had played the harlot uh, with peoples that they were supposed to remain apart from. You know, so you had, you had you know, their, their lax interactions with the Gentiles as causation for judgment. They had uh, their lax respect for the temple, um, which led to judgment and the ultimate destruction of the temple. And then you had their lax um, disregard for, for the Sabbath, again, contributing. In fact, Nehemiah kind of kind of brings these things up. Um, if you want the actual last written word of the Old Testament, you you would go to the to Nehemiah the prophet, and he cautions on these three things. You know, I mean, these are these are three things that were important. Now, you get to the New Testament. What's interesting, and the reason I bring it up is you get to the Pharisees, and what what three things did the Pharisees just have? I mean, they were bent out of shape about. I mean, they were really really devout when it came to obeying the Sabbath to the point that it's like, we cannot, we, we, we disobeyed the Sabbath. We got judged because of this. And by golly, we can't do that again. So we need to do everything we can to make sure we don't even come close to breaking the Sabbath. So they defined work. They added to the Bible, all these things that were not in the Bible to safeguard against sin. Again, legalism so often is when we add things to the Bible to safeguard from sin. The problem is, is that it distracts us from Jesus and a savior because it builds up our own uh, moral sense of morality and moral standing. So that's why you see the Sabbath. They constantly are going after Jesus about the Sabbath, as noted earlier. Uh, Additionally, they were geeked up about the temple. Um, In fact, one of the most provocative things that Jesus says that they just really didn't appreciate is when he's like, yeah, this temple is going to be destroyed. And in three days, I'll raise it up. You know, and they're like, it's taken 70 years for us to build this thing, blah, 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 blah. And obviously, Jesus was speaking of his body being the temple. But that, but that temple, that, that Herod's temple, it had become a, a symbol of dead religion, dead religious orthodoxy. It was lifeless. The Shekinah glory is not in that temple. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in that temple. It was dead religious exercise. So you had dead orthodoxy in the sense that they're so focused on obeying the law, they've lost sight of why, the whole point of the law, and, and they're so focused on, on this temple that they don't understand that it's dead and all of their exercises are futile. What are they making offerings to? There's no ark. Like, what are they going on the Day of Atonement and sprinkling blood on? There is no ark. There is no covenant. And then, and then what was the other big thing that they just ticked off about Jesus. Jesus is, is love for all men and women, not just Jews that were down and outers. You know, they hated Jesus. It was always tax collectors and sinners. Why did they hate tax collectors? Well, they were the turncoats. They were collecting taxes for Rome. You know, they, they were the sellouts. Jesus is hanging out with them, includes one of them, Matthew Levi, as one of his closest followers. But beyond that, Jesus would go into areas, Gentile territories, the woman at the well, Samaritans. He was constantly pointing out that why did God want them to remain separate and holy from the other nations? It was to be a light unto the nations. It wasn't because they were better. They they began to view their privilege as prejudice. And so you have these three things that they had built their entire moral sense of morality around and Jesus is poking holes in it the whole time. And so their motivation, Jesus was 
making fun of their morality, their sense of righteousness, their self-worth, their pride. You're not going to respond well to that. And in fact, Jesus would, would make it very clear. He's like, I- I'm not here for those who are well, but those who are in need of a physician. And what people kind of miss about what Jesus is saying is, yes, Jesus is saying that he's here for the, the lost, but he's making fun of them. He's like, oh, you guys are so well. You guys don't, you're not in need of salvation. You're not in need of a physician. He's saying you're blind. You've missed it. And so part of their motivation and for the venom that they have towards Jesus is that, is that he, he specifically attacked the, the very fundamental thing that they had based their entire morality on, their religion on, their status amongst the people upon. I think they also were, were, were ticked off because Jesus embarrassed them. Jesus was so good to people. He ministered to people. He loved people, all kinds of people, to the point that he had great multitudes, and they were jealous of that, of his influence, of the power that he was wielding. And then speaking of power, ultimately, Jesus was a threat to their relationship with Rome. You know, if, I think at some point they, they reach a conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah they want. And in fact, he's a threat to their deal with Rome, their money, their power, their influence. And you know, if we can bring it home, that's kind of why there's a lot of, it's kind of the same reasons that, that most people today reject Jesus. People that know who Jesus is have evaluated Jesus for themselves and know, know, but they still reject why. Well, because he's a threat to their, their moralism. You know, you can't accept a savior if you're not willing to admit you need to be saved. I don't think it's just a threat to the moralism. I think it's a threat to their identity. Because yeah, their connection, he, he, the yeah. Pharisees yeah. built their whole identity their on whole the identity. law, and yes. he came in and destroyed all of that. And that's what he does. He destroys your identity and turns it into himself. Right. He says you need a new identity. Your identity falls short of the glory of God, and I, I'm here to give you a new one. But unless you're willing to concede that there's something wrong with your identity, you know, a lot of people get tied up in an identity and they're not willing to surrender that identity to Christ. No, that's scary though. It can't be scary. I, you build your identity on one thing and then somebody comes in and just completely destroys it. What do you do then? You either start over again or let somebody else give you a new identity and part a new identity. It's right. the, um, I mean, that's essentially the, the central problem with people who say, um, Oh, I don't need to change. God loves me the way I am. Yeah. Right. You, have, you ever heard people say that? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Plenty of time. The problem is that, yeah, he loves the way you are. He wants you to be better. Yeah, he wants, he you wants you to be better. Doing what you do. Well, I mean, now. every encounter you see in the Bible, when an encounter with Jesus, it, it changed you one of two ways, either completely changed you or made you so angry that it, it, you rejected him. Yeah. Which we see again with the Pharisees, kind of the topic of conversation. But again, you can also say, as a way of application, aside from identity, and 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 again, beyond identity, which which again is such a broad, it's it gets all kinds of relevant applications to it. But like people's religiosity, you know, you know, th- these men were the experts in the scripture, and they were pious for the law. But they, but they failed to understand that all of that was to bring them to Jesus. It was all to reveal a need for a Savior. They got so focused on doing the right things, they forgot about, about the Christ, about transformation, about, about life, about people. You know, you see so many people today, religious people that hate Jesus. They'll never say that. But they hate grace because it strips them. You know, religion gives us a ladder to climb. And then that gives us a basis of comparison. A lot of times when people say I'm a good person, what they're really saying is that I'm better than you are in the eyes of God because of I do these things and I don't do these things. I do things that you don't do and I don't do things you do. And that makes me better than you. But at the foot of the cross, there's no ladder. The idea of grace is that there is not a ladder we're climbing. There's a cross in which we all kneel, kneel down in front of. You know, you know, I can't compare myself to anyone but Jesus. 
And if you're not willing to do that, then you lash out at Jesus, the standard. But then, again, in way of application, power. The Pharisees liked to have control. They had control. Man, the, the system was working out really well for them. They had power over the people. They had a sweetheart deal with Rome. They were making money, a hand over fist. They had a racket. Again, Jesus attacks that racket twice. One time he goes into the temple, he sees the money changers. And he takes a rod and he drives them out. Another time he sits there and fumes and weaves a whip. You know, both instances, you know, saying, my father's house shouldn't be, shouldn't be a house of a den of thieves. You know, <laughs> not exactly um, an olive branch to the religious establishment. But he was a threat to their power. And I think they even knew at some point who he was. And they did what they did anyway. Because they didn't want to give up control over their own lives. And when it's all said and done, that's why a lot of people reject Jesus too. Why a lot of people resist him. People lash out at him. Because Jesus is fundamentally a threat to, to your power. There's only one throne. Either you sit on it or Jesus does. But Jesus, this is not a dual kingdom. So, so Creighton, does that, that get anywhere close to the kind of the direction that you were wanting to go tonight? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's never exactly where I want to go tonight, but it's always a good thing. So yeah, okay. that was great. <laughs> well, do you have any follow any follow up questions, anything on the old computers? Um, we have uh, Colette who was rough, who just said brood of vipers, hypocrites. I think that was in response to asking what the Pharisees were. Um, she was referencing that, which is a great. I love the term brood of vipers. I'm actually going to be teaching one. on that next Sunday. Brood, oh, huzzah. Brood of vipers. Yeah, but that's it. Oh, we get to be a snake candle in church? Yeah, I can go, no. we can go find some. <laughs> no, that's not quite the direction. You know, the, you know where snake handling comes from? That yeah. one Malta? The one, yeah. Yeah. Island Malta. Where, where Paul yeah. is collecting sticks and gets struck by the viper. Deal, Daddy, you got anything? You've been kind of quiet tonight, just kind of rolling. Just rolling. Kyle, you got anything else? I do, actually. All right. Um, just when this question gets first, in, like, was first introduced, I had two thoughts. One is the direction you went where, like, there was the background to it and everything. But can you at least address the other thought that came in my head, which is, you know, are the Pharisees just acting as, as pawns of Satan? Like, is there just, you, you can say that's stupid and no, but, you know, is there some validity to that side of things? That's a good question. We got another hour. Right, right. Do we have another hour? No, we don't have another hour. But again, it's interesting. Brood of vipers. You know, Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. And um, again, you got to realize how provocative that statement is. Again, a brood is the children of. Children of vipers is what Jesus is calling them. Um, but within that a religious culture, they would have completely understood the imagery he's invoking. Because who is the great enemy? The great serpent of the, old. The great serpent, the dragon, the viper, the snake. And so when Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, he's calling them children of Satan, uh, which is why they <laughs> they weren't very happy about that. <laughs> they didn't take it too they well. They didn't take it too well. So to answer your question, you know, are were they were they tools of Satan? I mean, I think yes. Um, sure, they were tools of Satan. On the flip side, they were also tools of God because they were, they were used by God in their evil intent and motivation to bring, to bring the story of humanity to, a, to a, a tragic low in the crucifixion of Jesus, the ultimate rejection of God, to a radical crescendo, and that's the resurrection of Jesus. Um, should also be pointed out that the Pharisees don't really maintain their power very long you know they 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 view jesus as a threat not realizing that um his followers would be a threat um you know it doesn't take very long uh, for things to kind of spiral out of control in just 40 years um, after the crucifixion resurrection of jesus titus vespasian comes in and destroys uh, israel scatters the people to the diaspora. Um, you know, their power is, is, is taken. 
kind of how the world works. Um, so are they tools of Satan? Sure. Uh, they were instruments of God to carry forth God's plan. Um, Even a tool of Satan is a is instrument of God. Yeah. And I think, again, it's, it's, it's worth noting that not all of the Pharisees rejected Jesus. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a passage, um, the first couple chapters of Acts, when, we, when we're getting kind of waves of converts, where we're told a great many of the priests you know, gave their life to Jesus. Um, and of that class, you have Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, but you had, you had others you know, that saw all of this for what it was. And again, the resurrection was something that was, not deni- that, that was, that was undeniable. Um, and that really put people into a really radical place where they had to make a, a strong decision. So, um, you know, I think everybody, everybody that, that ends up in hell was a tool of Satan at some point. Um, if, if you reject Jesus, if you reject Jesus, you will always be hostile to Jesus or the followers of Jesus mm-hmm. uh, in some regard, in some way. Especially if, you know, you know the light, you're either drawn to the light or you're repulsed by the light. There, there's really not a middle ground. Jesus said, you're either my friend or you're my enemy. You're either with me or you're against me. And so there's really not much ground for neutrality. Um, and the Pharisees definitely picked, picked, a, picked a lane, um, and they were judged accordingly. So that kind of gets to your, your question? Absolutely, 100%. All right, well, guys, anything else? Creighton, thank I'm you so much. I'm good to go. Once again, my name is Zach Adams. So glad that you joined me on the Outlaw Radio Show. Again, if you're listening on the podcast... Google, Apple, Spotify. Check out the live stream Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. We live stream the recording of what you're listening to. So you can put uh, a face uh, to the voice. Uh, And you can also join us uh, live so you can interact uh, in real time uh, as the episode unfolds. Um, If you are watching, again, check out the podcast. Uh, Easy easy way to pass along the audio uh, to folks. A A lot of times people... Um, It's easier to listen to something than it is to sit down and watch it. Uh, And so the podcast, a great following on the podcast. Uh, With all that being said, uh, we will not be, again, next Wednesday, we will not be here. We're taking a week off, but we will be back the week after. So with all that being said, much grace, God bless, and we'll see you guys in two weeks.